0: I love the holidays. I love cooking. I love pulling out old bottles of wine, new bottles of beer. I love talking smack. I love fireplaces. I keep my pajamas on all day. I love people stopping by. I love board games. I love gravy. Everything tastes better with gravy, it does. And this, for me, has been such a hard. so hard I lost my little brother and I'll never forgive the universe for taking him away not like that not like that signed divorce papers which still I find almost impossible to contemplate is hard <laughs> so I especially love the reaffirmation that the holidays bring us the sameness, the ritual, the tradition, even as one chair remains empty around my table. I want the table set exactly like before. I'm going to need the same green beans. I need to taste the same crispy edges of the baked macaroni and cheese. I'm even going to use his bottle of Frank's hot sauce even though I told him a million times that sriracha is way better. Now, there are good ideas and there are good ideas a few years back. Some friends of mine, Kate Jim, Jim Kate, they had the best idea ever. And the idea is simple. The day after Thanksgiving, bring your leftovers over or bring nothing at all. Come have a holiday feast without all the weight of tradition or whatever. Nothing has to be just so. Just come hang. It's the best idea ever. Yes, you can use paper plates. Yes, you can drink out of the bottle. And yes, you can even wear your pajamas or wear somebody else's. I don't know when it happened, but the anti-tradition has become its own tradition. Both are written in love, and I love both. And today on Snap Judgment, the gratitude special, I hope you can love both too. My name is The Washington and I'm for real. Crispy edge of the mac and cheese is mine when you're listening to Snap Judgment. Now then, we're gonna start off the gratitude special with imagery that may disturb some vegans. I'm not gonna lie. Everyone else should find it finger-looking good because sometimes urban legends are true. Snap judgment.
1: So this story is brought to us courtesy of Troy. Troy Waters. He's a farmer. Been farming pretty much all my life. Still right here in,
2: in Fruita. That's Fruita, Colorado. It's a small town just outside of Grand Junction. And the business runs in the family. He farms, his father farmed, his grandfather
1: farmed. But the family member he learned the most about farming from is Lloyd. Lloyd was my mom's grandpa. And I spent probably as much or more time with him when I was younger, growing up, than I did my own dad. And he was a hard man, let me put it that way. Henry <laughs> had a mean streak, but he taught me how to shoot, taught me how to skin, taught me how to trap. The other thing he taught me is he taught me how to drown the skunk and resuscitate it.
2: Wait, what does that even mean?
1: <laughs> he, he showed me, he says, well, if any of your buddies ever fall in the canal and drowned, I'm gonna show you how to bring him back to life. And he literally, we caught a skunk in the trap and drug it over there to the ditch, and he drowned it, the dang thing. And then showed me how to pump its chest and get it to cough and, you know, get it back to life.
2: Well, why a skunk? Isn't that terribly dangerous? Like, why not a, uh, I don't know, something, some other small mammal that won't... Uh... <laughs> I,
1: I think that's just what we had to have in the trap that day, when he thought of it.
2: And... As a kid, are you, when, when he's teaching you this stuff as a kid, are you like rolling your eyes, or are you like freaking out?
1: Uh, one thing, you didn't roll your eyes around somebody like him, he'd whack you upside the head for rolling your eyes. So that was Lloyd, mean, but caring, and practical to a fault.
2: If you're a kid growing up on a farm, and you want to farm yourself, it'd be hard to find a better mentor. But remember, he wasn't even really Troy's grandfather. He was his great-grandfather, an old guy.
1: And he finally got to the point where, well, he started going blind. Uh, He had a minor stroke. Mom moved him in with us, and me and Grandpa's bedrooms were downstairs next to each other. And I spent a lot of nights sitting on the edge of his bed listening to him. He'd want to start talking and telling stories. There's several times my mom come down to wake me up for school, and she'd find me. I'd be laying in there on the floor in my Grandpa's room or on the foot of his bed because that's where I fell asleep uh, listening to him. And it was when we was living with him that I actually found uh, my grandmother's scrapbook that she kept of Mike the Headless Chicken.
2: Now, if you don't know about
1: Mike the Headless Chicken, don't worry.
2: At this point, Troy didn't either. All he knew was that in this scrapbook, there were pages of clippings, correspondence, family photos of his grandfather, Lloyd, with what appeared to be a chicken with no head. But in all his late-night chats, Lloyd had never mentioned anything about a headless chicken.
1: So Troy went and asked his mom, what's the deal? She goes, oh yeah, that's, you know, something that happened right before I was born, and Grandpa really don't like talking about it much. And I go, okay. But one of those nights when he was uh, wanting to visit, I got the story out of him. The story takes place right there in Fruta in 1945. Back then, Lloyd was raising friars. Friars... uh, a chicken that's raised you know for slaughter and the day that uh it was time to slaughter him you know he'd reach down in there and grab one by the legs throw it on the stump whack its head off with an axe and flip it over on the ground let it bleed out and you know he says you know you always had one you cut the head off and they make it back to its feet that's where the expression come from you know run around with chicken with your head cut off it's because they would do that Troy says that a good run for a chicken with its head cut off is
2: four, maybe five minutes, max.
1: Then it dies. But when he got done, a couple hours later, this one last chicken was still standing there without a head. And the chicken,
2: it looked fine. It wasn't bleeding. For the past two hours, it had just been walking around like normal,
1: headless. So he figured, what the heck, let's see if it'll live till morning. He put it in an old wooden apple box, set it on the back porch, and the next morning he got up and the thing was still alive. He was amazed that, you know, that's been alive for almost a day now. This shouldn't be happening. So he hitched up the team of horses, loaded up, you know, all the dead chickens to take them into town. He took this one with him in the apple box and started betting guys a beer that he had a live chicken about a head. And, of course, they expected it to, you know, be dead at any time it wasn't until day three that people started realizing how bizarre it really was
2: i'm just curious like what yeah what was it what was the chicken physically like to look at
1: he looked normal grandpa said he acted normal uh when he cut it off uh basically i think he dang near missed and he cut it high so when he cut the head off he uh left the base of the brain stem and actually one eardrum. So it, it still could hear. It'd still get startled, you know, with a loud noise or something. It still tried walking around. It would still try to prune itself with the stump of its head. Oh, no. You know, it was a it was a rooster. Right. A, you know, a male chicken. So it would still... Grandpa said it'd still try to crow, and it'd make a gurgling sound.
2: How did, how, how did How did... How did Lloyd feed it then?
1: They fed it right down its gullet with, you know, your old-fashioned glass eyedropper.
2: And that would have been the chicken's life. Preening, gurgling, ingesting, were it not for
1: what happened next. About two weeks later, that's when it caught the attention of a gentleman in the business of promoting sideshows. His name was Hope Wade. And the sideshow promoter had a proposition for Lloyd. He told Grandpa, "says, you know, we could travel around the country with this thing, and you could make a little money off of it." And you know that was right at the end of the Great Depression, and Grandpa was still pretty much farming with horse and mule. So he took Hope Wade up on his offer,
2: and it was a good thing he did because it turned out that Hope Wade was there's no other term for it. He was a marketing genius because he didn't just throw this chicken into the sideshow circuit right away. It's more like he rolled him out. Phase one was to give this chicken some credentials to make it more than just an urban legend. So he took it to a university, a biolab in Salt
1: Lake. And the scientists there surgically removed the heads of several chickens to try to duplicate the chicken's condition and never got any of them to live for any length of time.
2: Now that the chicken was a bona fide scientific phenomenon, that allowed Wade to initiate phase two, the press.
1: He got Life magazine to come and take pictures. Hope Wade says, Well we need the head. Well, Lloyd never thought about keeping the head. So the head that's in all the photographs was not his not his true head. It was donated by another
2: chicken. And if you look at the Life magazine photos, you can see why Wade was onto something here. There's the body, and right there on the ground next to it, there's its head, staring at you,
1: looking almost kind of forlorn. Hope Wade's also the one that come up with the name. Miracle Mike, the headless chicken.
2: Did he have any name before
3: that?
1: No. With phase three completed,
2: Wade declared that Miracle Mike was ready for the big time. Or, I guess, the
1: small time, because, you know, it's a sideshow. They had him in a tent, and they would have callers, is what they called them standing out front. Grandpa said they'd usually take turns, either him or Hope Wade, to try to convince people to pay their two bits to come inside and actually see him. His only problem was when uh, people would come in, most of the time he'd just sit there in the straw like it was asleep. Because in Mike's world, it was always night. Mm. And they'd have to prod it and get it walking around and, you know, try to make it active to prove that it wasn't dead. Some people were amazed. uh, Some people were horrified. But, you know, part of what made Miracle Mike work was Grandpa was there because he was the man that swung the axe.
2: The man and his chicken proved an irresistible combination. Mike was a hit. In Salt Lake, in Phoenix, on the boardwalk in Long Beach. At some point, there was a whole tour of the South.
1: And at his peak... Mike was probably making several thousand dollars a week. A year
2: passed, a year and a half, and Mike's fame spread far and wide.
1: There's letters that are only addressed to the owners of Mike the Headless Chicken 200 miles west of Denver. And them letters found their way to my grandparents. Some of them were good. Most of the letters Grandma kept were were hate mail. There's one letter that actually compares my grandparents to the Nazis for their cruelty of letting Mike live. You know, and I and I did ask Grandpa about that. I said, what do you think about that? And he goes, "He goes, oh, hell. He goes, you know, that chicken had the best life of any chicken. He says it was nurtured. And his words were, got to see more of the country than any other chicken ever got to see, even though it didn't have a head. Did,
2: did Floyd or Wade... Did either of them ever develop
1: feelings for Mike? I'm sure they did. I mean, how could you not? It had to have been taken care of, like like you'd take care of a of an infant, a baby. You know. So I'm sure you'd you'd develop feelings for it. Uh, did Grandpa ever admit that to me? No. That 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 wasn't the kind of man he was.
2: And, and during this time, was there? any sign that Mike was, like, flagging?
1: No. He was doing good. But one day, Grandpa came back home from the sideshow, and he didn't have Mike with him. So everyone asked him, what happened? And he'd always claimed that he'd sold it. Just told everybody that he got tired of traveling all around the country, and it was fun for a little bit, but he was ready to come back to the farm. Somewhere around two years after, one of the local newspapers asked Grandpa if he'd heard from Mike and if Mike was still doing good, and he goes, oh yeah, he's still doing good and still traveling around the world. But he never did say how much he sold it for, and everybody thought that my grandfather had made millions. And it wasn't until one day, sometime in the 80s, a lady from the local newspaper called up, and she asked him who he sold it to. And he says, I didn't sell it. It died. And I remember my mother was in the kitchen peeking her head around real wild-eyed and looking at me. And I looked back at her because that was the first she'd ever heard of it. And, you know, that intrigued me. Well, what happened, Grandpa? And he finally broke down, and he actually had got a tear in his eye, and he says, well, I let it, I let it die. It was my fault. What happened is when they had it in Phoenix uh, at a sideshow, they brought it back to the motel room with them, and that night it started choking, and they you know, woke him up, and they went to get the bulb syringe to clear his throat, and they had forgot it at the sideshow. And before they could find anything to clear its throat, it choked to death on him.
2: And um what what did what did he do with with Mike's uh, body?
1: I would assume that it ended up flipped out in the desert, somewhere between here and Phoenix. And I think it he always felt that, you know, it was his fault. He's the one that left the bulb syringe at the sideshow. And he let the goose that was laying the golden egg die on him. And as for all the money Lloyd did manage to make before Mike died? Grandpa's exact words to me is that the government took most of it in taxes. Hope Wade took his cut, and he made enough money that he modernized his farm. And he bought him a brand new pickup, which I still own today. But that was pretty much it. After
2: that, there was no money left. Lloyd went back to farming. By all accounts... He was never able to replicate his former success.
1: But knowing Lloyd the way I knew him growing up, I'm sure that every time he swung an axe again, I'm sure that was in the back of his mind.
2: What about you? Have you ever tried?
1: Have I ever tried? (laughs) No, I have not. Has the thought crossed my mind? Yeah. Just as a laughing thought. But... No, I, I think if I did one today and actually lived, I don't know if I'd let it live. I think I'd finish the job.
0: Troy Walters. Troy is still working on his family-owned farm in Fruta, Colorado. And for more information about Mike and his legacy, visit our website, snapjudgment.org. The original score for that piece was by Renzo Gorio. With additional instrumentation by Andrew Vickers. That piece was produced by Headless Joe Rosenberg. Snap Judgment, the gratitude special continues. Bullies on the playground. Oh my, be afraid. But stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment. Gratitude special, you are in for a treat. Could I save a seat for you right front and center with the full house at LA's Nokia Theater? Snap judgment, live. We're gonna start off. We're gonna start off with the guy I've been chasing for three years. He doesn't look like it, but he's slippery and wily and quick. Please put your hands together for Mr. Mike.
4: A haiku to start, I am Mike McGee, I love women and free food, running makes me sad, Proof. Now, I have the luxury of not enjoying running, but I was born with spina bifida, and those of you who don't know what that is, it is a, a neural tube defect, it's a birth defect that, you know, it's a spinal deformation, and most people with it can't run, usually in wheelchairs, they need help with mobility. I don't, I can, you know, karate chop, I can't kick very highly, Now, because of spina bifida, I do have a certain amount of nerve damage basically between my nipples and my knees. And that nerve damage affects my bladder. It doesn't work at all. I have no bladder control whatsoever. Not a drop of it. I wear diapers. I've worn diapers my whole life. 37 years of diaper changing, I'm pretty good at it. (laughs) Now, I'm pretty comfortable now with wearing diapers, but I wasn't as a kid. As a kid, it was tough because kids could hear them. Whenever I'd walk through school, they'd hear my diapers. And they'd find out about it. And I was Catholic, so I couldn't lie about it, you know. So I would explain to them what spina bifida was. And they just weren't having it. And they thought I was a freak, and they would tease me. Diaper boy! Really original. We moved a lot. And everyone came up with diaper boy. Times were tough. I mean, not too tough with my family. You know, I've been chubby my whole life. My mouth has been high-fiving food since 1985. (laughs) But being teased so mercilessly through school made it really tough. And one day I came home crying. One time, one time only, I came home crying. And my mom grabbed me and she said, Michael, if you're going to survive this life, you got to make them laugh with you and not at you. She was right. Right then and there, she gave me permission to be hilarious but I was still pretty bad at it. I got into eighth grade and I was just as mean, as ruthless as everyone else. I avoided public swimming pools, locker rooms. The idea of being seen in my diaper was like foreign. It was impossible and unacceptable. I couldn't do it. But the meanest people in school were these rich kids in eighth grade at Hoover Middle School in San Jose. They would sit on this grassy knoll near the cafeteria and they would just bestow insults upon everyone, especially the poor kids. I was considered a poor kid. So I thought, well, I need a team. If I'm gonna take down these kids, I'm gonna need a team to help me out. So I rounded up all the funniest kids in school, and we sat at the bench between the cafeteria and the grassy knoll. And we aimed all of our insults at the rich kids. Every once in a while, kids would come out of the cafeteria and they'd get hit too. Sort of a little sit-by shooting, you know. But it was working. And it made the rich kids hate me even more. And I was fine with that. These John Hughes bastards. And we would mess with everything about them as much as we could. The gel in their hair and their new kids on the block conversations. 1989. So... All of a sudden, in the spring of 1990, pantsing became the thing. Pantsing. And my crew, we were the clowning crew, all got pantsed. And we were trying to figure out how was it that everyone that I liked was getting pantsed. And it turns out that the rich kids loved the idea of pantsing. But there was no way they were ever gonna touch the clothing that was bought at Kmart. So, They had a hired gun, and his name was Corey. Corey was the fastest kid at Hoover Middle School. And the reason he was the fastest kid was because he was the skinniest kid. The reason he was the skinniest kid is because he was easily the poorest kid at school. He got free lunch like us in the cafeteria. We couldn't understand how the rich kids lured him in. He had principles, And then one day, we figured it out. The rich kids lured him onto the grassy knoll and made him pants people by raiding their cupboards and pantries at home, food they knew no one would miss, and they'd fill his backpack with groceries to take home to his family. It was the only way to get him to do it. And, and he did, with efficiency. He was of the wind. He could pants anyone. By the time you knew your pants were around your ankles, he was gone. And he probably had your wallet, too. He was so good. And there's no way I could outrun him. And that occurred to me. One day, I was like, I'm going to be a target. There is no way the rich kids aren't going to make sure that I get pantsed. My clowning crew grew nervous. So for days, we tried figuring out a way to avoid me getting pantsed. Because if I get seen in a diaper, it will be the end of my life from here on out. I'd still be alive, but it would just be dull. (laughs) So we tried figuring this out, and there was just no way around it because my wardrobe consisted literally of three t-shirts and four pairs of sweatpants. Sweat pants. A cloth made of the finest dryer lint and hope. Pants made for pantsing. I was so scared it was going to happen. There's no way around it. I couldn't outrun Corey. He, a tiny, very hungry cheetah, <laughs> <laughs> waiting for a buffet, and me, a fat, lazy zebra, really just ready to be a buffet. <laughs> the day came. I woke up one warm June morning knowing it was going to happen. I went to school like nothing was going on. I got my free lunch. I stood outside the cafeteria and I kept my eye on Corey. The whole school kept their eye on us. They knew it was coming down. My clowning crew was nervous. They knew it was gonna happen that day. I stood there, kept my eye on him, thinking if I can see where Corey is, I'm safe. There's no way it's gonna happen. And if it's not gonna happen, then that means I've won. Maybe I've already won. And by the time that thought hit my brain, I felt two bony handfuls of sweatpants being tugged down by Corey behind me, the ninja pantser. I looked down to see the elastic of my sweatpants around my ankles. I had been pantsed. Corey and the rest of the lunch crowd looked up, expecting to see me, in a diaper. But instead, what they saw was a second pair of sweatpants. It didn't work. I couldn't believe it. Corey couldn't believe it. I looked back at him. We just smiled, knowing that we had both won. He rose to his feet, shook my hand, walked up the knoll, claimed his groceries one last time. I eyed the rich kids. They knew we had won. There was nothing they could do about it. I returned to my seat, claimed my spot on the bench with my clowning crew, knowing that Corey and I were the winningest losers at Hoover Middle School, class of 1990.
0: Big love to Mighty Mike McGee for the hilarity Mighty Mike McGee original music composed by Alex Mandel, performed by Alex and the Snap Judgment players David Brandt and Tim Frick. See the full video of this performance in all of its Technicolor glory, along with countless other amazing performances as well of Snap on the live stage. It's all on our website snapjudgment.org. Snap Judgment returns. What if you had to tell your biggest, darkest secret over and over again? Find out in just a moment. Snap Judgment. Welcome back the Snap Judgment Gratitude Special. My name is Tom Washington, and today we're talking about the stories and the things that we are grateful for. And for me, I am so thankful for Snap Nation. For all the love and support you listeners have shown this crazy, ridiculous enterprise that is Snap Judgment. Thank you. And we want to hear what you're grateful for. So we sent Snap Judgment digital producer Marissa Dodge out on the streets of Oakland
5: I am grateful for my grandchildren I have one that's going to be two in about a week and I have a brand new one who's five months and I'm grateful for them
0: for my family my friends and my health
5: I'm always grateful for my health um, be able to have a job and a roof over my head anything else is extra
0: I'm yeah. grateful to be sane healthy alive and out of prison.
3: This season, what am I grateful for? Um, If it's directly in regard to this whole Thanksgiving thing, because I'm Native American, I actually boycott the entire holiday. Um, But I'm really grateful that for You know, the holiday season, I'll get to go to a sunrise ceremony on Alcatraz Island with my sister. So that's the first time we've been able to do that, and I'm really excited and super grateful to spend time with her, especially at ceremony. I'm
5: grateful that that my mom uh, survived uh, cancer for the second time.
1: My family and my friends.
4: I'm grateful for a lot of things, but just being healthy and my family.
1: To be alive. I'm grateful for
5: my mom.
3: Sometimes when really bad things happen, you have so much to be grateful for. Particularly, I would say my friends have come through really big time for me in the past uh, six months. So just fixing me meals, taking me out for dinner, sending me a text, all those things have been incredible.
0: Staff Judgments, Marissa Dodge, and the good people of Oakland, California. Thank you. Now, our next story goes to show, if you really have something to tell someone, tell them now. KUOW reporter Liz Jones. It takes it from here.
6: My friend Ben, he's known he was gay since about the seventh grade. And he says although he came out to almost everyone in his life early on, he put off telling his parents for a long time.
5: So growing up, there were always times that my mom would ask me, so when are you going to get married? I mean, I would never know when it was coming. but. It would come up all the time. Just, when are you going to get married? When are you going to have kids? Do you have a girlfriend yet? And I would just try to change the subject, you know, saying, I only want to talk about it.
6: This is actually from an interview I conducted with Ben nine years ago. So you have to remember that back then, there was no gay marriage. That still seemed like a long way off. And Ben, he just didn't want to break his mom's heart. He'd planned to tell his parents in college, but then his mom's health took a bad turn. She developed a brain aneurysm, went blind for six months, had heart trouble, and needed a pacemaker. It just never seemed like the right time.
5: You know, so near, another year would go by, and another year would go by. It was getting to be ridiculous, because like, I was in my 30s at this point, and I just wasn't that kind of person. Like, I think it was a disappointment in myself. It's like, gosh, you just have to do it. You just have to get it over with and not have this hanging over your head.
6: Finally, one New Year's, he was at his parents' house, hanging out with his mom in the kitchen, and she asked the same question that she always asked. She just asked me, you know, Junior, when are you gonna get married?
5: And so, finally, I was just like, you know what? I'm just gonna tell her. So I, you know, I said, Mom, I'm never gonna get married because I'm gay. And she. She starts laughing at first. She goes, oh, ha, 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 very funny. You're not gay. And I'm like, mom, I'm gay. Then, you know, she just gets this really perplexed look, almost like kind of pissed at me maybe. like. And then so we kind of got into this little, you know, not quite a fight, but just more of an argument. And I could just see her disappointment. But I definitely felt a big weight off my shoulders on my list of, Huge things I needed to accomplish in my life. That was a huge check mark that I was able to take off to finally come out to my parents and to be completely out.
6: After that, although Ben's dad was fairly accepting, his mom just didn't really talk about it. But Ben figured that's okay. He had done his part and now she was processing. I guess it was about a year and a half later, my sister
5: had gotten engaged and um, we were at an engagement party and You know, at that point, my mom looks at me, and she's like, when are you going to get married? At first, I was like, oh, she's joking. I'm like, come on, Mom. You know I'm not going to get married. And then she's like, why? Like, what do you mean? And I'm like, Mom, I'm gay, and you know this. Then I saw that little look on her face turn to more, like, confusion. Like, you're gay? I was like, oh my god, she does not remember. She had some short-term memory issues, but I was like, there's just no way that she can't remember this about me. And it was just that whole feeling, a little bit of shame came out again, and so it was a bit of a uh, shock that I had to go through it
6: again. So after the second time, I mean, do you feel like now she finally gets it? I think at that
5: point, I was just like, you know, I'm going to just have to remind her again and this will become part of her memory now. But I think in the back of my head, I just could tell by the way she was looking at me, the way she was talking about it, that she still maybe did not grasp it 100%.
6: Six months pass, and it's another new year. Ben and his family are at the Buddhist temple, where they go every New Year's Day to chant their resolutions
5: and it's this whole group of probably 500 people or so chanting over and over. And then my mom, just sitting there, she's like, when are you gonna get married? married." And I was like, oh, no, not right now. And she is like, you just need to find the right girl. I'm going to chant for you. And I'm like, I'm going to chant
6: that you understand. That night, Ben went to his sister his dad, and had kind of an emergency family gathering. There must be a way, they figured, to get his mom to remember. So
5: that's why we came up with this game plan for my dad to talk about, like my sister told my dad, I want you to, every night before you go to bed, just say, Junior's gay, (laughs) which we thought was really funny because we didn't know if he would do it or not. And when we were just imagining my mom and my dad laying there in their bed and like saying, good night. Junior's gay, (laughs) but just to try to, maybe it would sink into her subconscious while she was sleeping. So we had all these plans where, like, we just need to talk about it more. You know, like, you come home when you go visit them, say, hey, hey, mommy, dad, I'm gay.
6: (laughs) But it turned out the fourth time wasn't the one that would make her finally understand. Neither was the fifth or the sixth. He got to the point where it was just comical because the same scenario has happened
5: time and time again. (laughs) She would ask in the morning, maybe at breakfast, and then it wasn't unlikely for it to happen again in the afternoon. Like, Mom, we just talked about it this morning. It's like, what did we say? Wait, so how many times has this happened? Oh, at this point, I, I don't even know. I mean, my brother has a three-year-old son, we just had the birthday at some big chain restaurant, and we're sitting there with all these kids, and I could just see the look in her eye that it's coming, because she starts looking at me, looking at the kids. So I'm trying to talk about everything and anything else other than marriage, and, you know, we're making it through the birthday cake, and there she goes. There she goes. When are you going to get married?
6: So are you feeling like she can't get it because of her memory problems, or... Because she doesn't want to get it.
5: Yeah, I mean, I definitely think there must be this emotional block. There's a part of her that just doesn't really want to believe it. Even though she sees me as a happy person every day, she thinks in my life, I probably truly can't be happy unless I'm married, you know, to a woman and I just have this family. So the novelty of it has worn off, definitely, whereas before it was... You know, it's gone Run the gamut of frustration, to anger, to sadness, to just being a hilarious story that it would tell, to now it's just, I'm just tired of talking about it, kind of. Now it's like, mom, come on. You know, at this point, you have to know. It's been 10 times, or it's been 15 times that we've had this conversation, and I know you must know. And when I was younger, I was almost angry at her for deserting. Like, I was like, where's my real mom? I'm like, gosh, my old mom would give me a hug and say she understood and, you know, support me with it. But now you
6: don't understand. Ben told me that because of this, sometimes he found it easier to not come out at all, to stay in the closet, at least for that day.
5: Sometimes it would be when we were, you know, at the hospital when my dad was, ha- you know, going through chemo from his cancer and she would bring it up. You know, with all her sincerity, and it was, I didn't want to hear it because it was like horrible timing. They would be like, yeah, mom, yep, I'm going to get married, have a baby, and head off the question as soon as I could.
6: However this may sound, Ben and his mom are really close. They have this great connection. We I went with them one day to the supermarket. They joke around a lot as they're shopping. <laughs> Ben's mom leans on his arm as she walks.
5: Can you carry that? Yeah. I are you sure?
3: Yes.
6: <laughs> Sitting in the car afterwards, Ben mentions his sister's pregnancy. We both look at his mom and wait. We knew he was setting her up. Without missing a beat, she turns to him and says she wants him to get married.
3: That's
6: so nice. <laughs> Ben's my friend, and I've heard him imitate his mom saying this dozens of times at parties. But watching it happen, it just seems sad. He patiently explains while his mom shakes her head, and after a while, she starts to cry a little. She stares out the window, away from him. He slaps her on the leg.
1: Why are you eating
6: me? You wanna
3: make me cry? (laughs) (laughs) Just be back to normal.
5: (laughs) <laughs> it is it's my normal
3: that's not normal
5: well everyone has their own normal mom it's not the same but you always told me to be proud of our differences it's not like see I mean you know it's not like I'm choose. I've chosen there's no way that anyone would choose this you know that to choose it to have your parents not want to accept you you know why would you choose that there's no reason right All right? No, now kiss. <laughs> Thank you. I've actually had dreams of my mom before she was sick. You know, it's not necessarily like we're talking about this subject, but I mean, in one dream that I've had, I was with a boyfriend and she was driving us somewhere in our old Chevy Malibu that we had. It was great, we were just like driving, I don't even know we were driving to Kmart or somewhere where we used to always go as kids. And But I just remember being with this guy that I don't remember what he looked like, I wish I did. And she was just driving, just talking like everything was normal, fine, it was no big deal. And she would know, you know, you know, my son's gay and I could skip all this trouble of having to come out numerous, endless times.
6: When I first interviewed Ben, I wondered if this was it for him, this kind of one-act play with his mom, a play that would never close. But like I said, that was nine years ago, and recently, I got a chance to catch up with both of them at her house in Seattle. Are
4: you ready to eat? Eats my favorite. You're (laughs)
3: right.
5: You're always up for a meal, right?
3: (laughs) All the
6: time. That second guy you hear, that's Paul. He's Ben's partner, They met right after our first interview, and this is their weekly family dinner with Ben's mom.
5: I make pickles, borscht, and lasagna. (laughs) (laughs) One time.
6: (laughs) (laughs) Ben's father passed away a few years ago, and his mom is a lot slower than she used to be. But looking at Paul sitting at the table, laughing and joking with her, it's almost like this is what crumbled her memory block. Having Paul around all the time as a friendly reminder that her son is gay she gets it. And um, yeah, is so we've spicy? been together now for eight years. Oh, My mom really cares for him
5: as well, thinks he's a great guy. You know, hug and kiss every time she sees him.
4: We just did a birthday dinner for Ben. Oh, yeah.
5: 47. <laughs> <laughs> Mamma mia, 47. For me, always. He's 15 years old. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
3: <exactly. laughs>
5: Over the time, she would still say, you need to find a wife. And she would still say it. And I'd be like, Mom, I have Paul in the first couple of years. But just recently, I'd say in the last year or two, it turned from when are you going to get married to only when are you going to give me a Mago? When are you going to give me a grandchild, a baby? And when I finally said, Mom, you know that I'm with Paul, she was like, I know, but you could still have a Mago.
0: love from Snap. We hope everything works out. The original score for that piece was by Renzo Gorio, and the story was produced by Liz Jones in partnership with our good friends at KUOW. Now, years ago, Liz, she originally edited that tape together with Sarah Koenig. When Sarah worked at This American Life, it took a while, but we are so glad that it finally came out. It's not right. It is not fair for you to know all about this Snap Judgment storytelling while people, good people, people like you and me, they water these streets ignorant of what they are missing. Let them know. If they missed even a moment, it'll all be there for them on the amazing Snap Judgment podcast. You are welcome. Get it wherever you get your podcast or at snapjudgment.org. You are welcome. Snap was produced by the team that absolutely refuses to do any Christmas shopping before Thanksgiving plates are washed and put away. Please, pour some gravy for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Cornbread, Pat Mercedes Miller, Anna, Hogmall Sussman, Marissa, Collard Greens Dodge, Nika, The Stuffing Sing, Flo Mac and Cheese Wiley, Eliza Mashed Potato Smith, Moonshine. Renzo Gorio, Leon Cream Corn, Morimoto, John Lupia Facile, Banana Putin, Nancy Lopez, Shayna, Tasteless Vegan Option, Sheely, Tail Hold the Mail Cot, Liz Second Helping Mac, my name is from Washington. Please hit me on the Twitter if you want to know what I really think about all this here, all these things. And despite the many myriad executives and highly placed government officials who might try to tell you otherwise. Please understand that this is not the news. No way it's the news. In fact, you could receive an invitation to an African American Thanksgiving feast and upon attending said party try to pass off Karen's pumpkin pie as Dominique's sweet potato pie and learn instantly on that day what a very 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 bad choice. You made true story. I did try to warn her and you would still, still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is WNYC.